You are listening to the Impact Church Podcast. To learn more about Impact Church, visit us online at impactharlem.org. You can also check us out on social media. Good morning once again. I'm so happy to see all of you. You could have stayed home, but you're here to praise God, to hear His Word spoken, and so that's what we're going to dive into this morning. As you all know, we're doing our series called Inside Out in the book of James. Um, This puts us at week eight, and so Pastor Dustin will come in next week and deliver the last message in the series before we start getting into the series that we'll bring uh, during Easter. And so, as usual, I think it's always important for us to revisit what the sermon was on the previous week. And so if you recall, Pastor Andrew brought us a message. If you've had a chance to check it out on the podcast, the title of the message is pretty catchy. It's really question mark exclamation point. And the point of it was really getting to the heart of a problem that Christians in James's time, the ones he was writing to in dispersion, they were having this really big problem acting like the world. So God expected them to have faith in Jesus Christ and be living a different way that their lives would demonstrate evidence that Jesus Christ had changed them and that they were different, but yet they looked just like the world. They were quarreling among each other. They were bickering and fighting. And so there was just a lot of text there that pointed out to problems that we even have in the modern church today. And so that was the problem. And then we kind of moved to the solution, which is one of humility. And so humility was defined for us so we understood that we we have to humble ourselves before God, that we have to understand that He is bigger and that we are less, that we have to act different. And we got to just remember at the end of the day that when we belong to Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit should be constantly convicting us of our sin. And when we feel that conviction, we should be surrendering it over to God, seeking repentance, and then continuing to move forward. And this should be a cyclic process in our lives. So this morning, that was chapter 4. We're going to be pivoting to chapter 5. We only have six verses to cover, so let's go ahead and check those out and dive right on in. So if you want to take a moment, go ahead and and get out your Bibles or your phone and turn to the Bible app. If you don't have either, the text will be here on the screen for you to follow. So James chapter 5, and we're going to be going through verses 1 through 6. It says, come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. We have some pretty powerful words this morning, uh, jumping right into the beginning of chapter 5. This isn't the first time that James has come to us during this series and presented this this warning about wealth and about the rich. In James chapter 1, he he called out to rich people who put their faith in their wealth instead of putting their faith in their almighty God. 
And then in chapter 2, you can remember when Dustin preached on partiality. You had rich Christians as well as uh, poorer Christians meeting together and the church was showing favoritism to those who were more wealthy than those who were not. And so we learned during that series, and James called out, that God hates partiality. And so we're not supposed to be doing that in the church. We're not supposed to be doing that outside the walls of the church. And so we also saw as we explored the text that there was much information available to us that James was getting to the point that certain rich Christians were also not only oppressing like workers that we see in the text, but also that they were oppressing uh, fellow believers. And this should not be the way that Christians treat one another. And commentators have also often debated when James calls out the behavior of these rich folks, they very well may be rich believers, because we know that in this book of James, he's writing to Christians. But at the same time, there are some that believe that he may be writing about Jewish unbelievers, folks who have not put their faith in Jesus Christ as well. Regardless of whether it is rich Christians or rich unbelievers, we still have a serious problem to address this morning. There are some severe warnings about how we act when we have wealth. And so what can we derive from the text this morning? Like, what is James truly trying to warn us about? Why is this this thing called wealth, why is it so dangerous? If if we look at the language, it's just so strong. Uh, Dustin and Andrew, throughout different parts of the series when they've preached, have called out some of the word choices that James has used. And one of the first things here is, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. This is a surprising choice of words, and it's really countercultural to, to what we believe about wealth. We, we live in a, a society where attaining great wealth, hitting the lottery, uh, striking it rich in the stock market, getting these large fat incomes, and buying all the possessions to impress our friends and our neighbors, it's kind of a way of life. That, that's what we're taught to chase after. So this should be making us happy, right? Like many people would tell you that wealth should be bringing you freedom, that it should be bringing you success, security, worth and happiness. But it's starting to seem like much like we opened up in chapter one and Dustin seemed to suggest that James might be a bit crazy when he told us to count it all joy when we go through various trials and struggles. That's countercultural. Once again, we're met with in the text another countercultural statement that wealth comes with warnings and dangers and that it can lead to spiritual death. So is that what we're getting at here? Is, is James just off his rocker? Uh, or are we missing the bigger picture? As we were going through the text and we read further in, we, we see other language as well. Your riches are rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Folks of that time would have hoarded up lots of food and drink, and so these types of riches would have rotted because they had an abundance and they literally could not eat enough, Okay. It's sort of like the toilet paper crisis we're facing today, right? Like, how much do you really need? It's okay if you want to laugh. I thought that was pretty funny. Garments were very important during that time. Garments were used for trade. They were shown as a status symbol. Uh, And in this case, we're saying that they're moth-eaten, that they're just getting torn up by the bugs and withering away. To take it further, the gold and the silver, all this wealth they've accumulated, the monetary type, has eroded. And this is, is powerful here. And that eroded, that, that, that corrosion is evidence against them 
and it will eat their flesh like fire. So it's clear that the hoarding of all this wealth is in clear view of judgment in the text this morning. And it doesn't just stop there. It even says that they were living lives of luxury and self-indulgence. Once again, this is countercultural. Like, luxury is something we're supposed to enjoy. Why can't I have a Ferrari? Why can't I have a yacht? Why can't I have a $50,000 RV? And it takes it further, to use figurative language, that they fatten their hearts in the day of slaughter. The problem is worse than that. The text began and ended and pointed out something even worse. That these rich people were getting richer by keeping the wages of those who had tended to their fields. And James was aware of this. And more importantly, God was aware of this. The Bible says that God heard their outcries. And it says that they had murdered the righteous person. So while the laborer is being oppressed and they may cry out, I need my, my money to eat, like day-to-day wages at that time. If they didn't get paid, they couldn't eat. They couldn't take care of their families. This was a critical thing. And so the text alludes to the fact that these rich people had even condemned and murdered the righteous person, referring to those that work from them. So this, this point of, of fraud and oppression is just a terrible way to end this text. And so we kind of understand what it means for the audience uh, that James was writing to, but how is this applicable to us today? I would imagine that many of us in this room, when we read about this type of wealth and we read about this type of behavior, we may feel like we could never aspire to or collect or gain or hoard that amount of wealth. So surely uh, this doesn't apply to us, but it's not that simple. And so as we pivot to what the message means to us today, I I think it's really that we finally have an important discussion. You see, it's very easy to not be able to identify with the rich people being called out in the text today. And if you do that, you may simply miss what the Holy Spirit is trying to say to all of us today. I've oftentimes said that Hermeneutics is this process of rightly interpreting the Word of God, understanding the original biblical audience and what God was trying to communicate to them at that time. And then from that, we derive the underlying theological principles so that we can apply it to the here and now. If we don't do that, we misinterpret the Word of God, we misapply it in our lives, and we misrepresent the truth of God found in His Word. And so it's important for us, now that we understand what it meant to the original audience, what does it mean to us. So even if you couldn't identify with them, you might just simply ignore it because the truth of the matter is now we're starting to get into that no-no land because it sounds like we might start to have a conversation about money. But hear me in this, finances and wealth is as much as a problem today as it was in biblical times. It's, It's a topic that is a point of discussion amongst all of us in our family circles, in our friend circles. It's in our politics every day. It's on the news. Um, It's still one of the leading causes of divorce in America. We have people walking around in so much bondage, hundreds of thousands of dollars of debt and credit cards, student loans, car payments, you name it. But let me ask you something this morning. Is the wealth itself actually the problem? Or could there be more to it than that. I'm going to get right to it. I think it's time that we have a talk about money. Impact Church, we launched on January 5th. We're 
ending the third month of being here. And at some point, a pastor is going to have to get in the pulpit and they're going to have to say something about money. And I get it. I've, I've just committed the unpardonable sin of our culture today. I'm a pastor in front of a church congregation and I'm going to talk to you about money. Ross, go lock the doors. <laughs> is anybody feeling uncomfortable yet? I'd like to tell you that I feel sorry for you, but I don't. Understand this morning that just as uncomfortable as you may be having a conversation or hearing a sermon preached about money, I'm just as uncomfortable standing up here and preaching it. And if the tables were turned when I'm not preaching and I'm sitting in that chair or I'm serving back there, I'm constantly being convicted. I am constantly feeling uncomfortable. And the reason for that is that when I come to church, I don't come to church to be comfortable. The minute I began to feel comfortable, I start to wonder what kind of sinful trap I have fallen into. The minute you come to church and you feel like everything's okay and that you can stand there and worship God, you can listen to a pastor preach a message and you do not feel like something is going on in your life that you need to change, I would get very, very worried. And so this morning, I'm not going to bring you a message that's going to make you comfortable, but I ask you to please not tune me out. Please do not tune me out. You've been coming here for weeks on end, and you have a right to know what God's Word says about money and whether or not this church that you've been attending aligns to what God has to say about it. Amen? So this is, I think, an important part. I, I normally would have prayed right after we read the Scripture, but I wanted to build this up and, and, and be transparent with you. It's only a coincidence that the offering bucket is back there after this message. I promise you, it's a precautionary step. We're not taking up any type of special offering today. We're not doing any kind of fundraiser. I'm not going to ask you for any money. We are going to talk about giving. I'm going to point out what Scripture says that Christians should be doing in the concept of giving. But what we're going to do is we're going to pray now. We're going to ask God to open our hearts to remove any presuppositions or pre-understandings or any walls that we've put up that would prevent the Holy Spirit from speaking to us this morning. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, this is often a difficult message in many churches. This is a place, Lord, where folks are so fast to harden their hearts. Your Word has so much to teach us, so much uh, joy uh, to offer, and so much hope, and so much instruction, Lord. We can apply it to our lives and live holier and, and be more like Christ and, and be able to do good uh, to our neighbors and to spread the gospel. And so this morning, I just pray that you would be with us in the message. Lord, let me decrease so you may increase. And I just ask that you would be glorified on this day. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. So if it's not clear yet, for those in the congregation that already know me, I'm pretty passionate about this topic when it comes to money. And to be completely honest with you, my life was a train wreck growing up. I grew up dirt poor. I can remember, you know, my family of four living in a camper and taking baths with a water hose. Things were so bad. I had parents that were addicted to crack and cocaine. There were terrible, dark times in my life. And the only thing that my parents ever taught me, and the first one was pretty good, was to work hard. But when it came to money, the only thing I ever knew was to spend every last bit of it on indulgence and things that I needed. That's all I knew about money. And so I ran into life 
with this, this misperception of how things are. I definitely wasn't handling money the way God says that I should handle it, and I was getting nowhere. And if you've been around me long enough, you've probably heard me talk about awesome Christian authors like Dave Ramsey and Larry Burkett and Randy Alcorn. And you kind of now, you've heard a little bit of background about me and why I'm so passionate, but would it surprise you if I told you that God's Word has an awful lot to say about money? Here's some facts for you. Did you know that the Bible has about 2,350 verses that talk about money and possessions? If we were to compare this against faith and prayer combined, it's twice as much. Jesus spoke more about money and possessions than he did about heaven and about hell. If we were to scrutinize, and we should be doing this, we should scrutinize the Word of God and read it and dig in hard, all the recorded words that we have in our Bibles that Jesus said, money and possessions takes up about 15% of the text. So, this morning it's clear that we don't have time to go over thousands of verses. I could preach a whole sermon series on money and the Bible would give me plenty of verses to back it up. What we're going to do this instead this morning, though, is to make sure that we don't fall prey to the same sinful behavior that James has called out in the text this morning. We're going to look at three fundamental biblical truths that we can live out and start handling money God's way. So the first point this morning is this, the morality of wealth. Human beings are really good at misinterpreting what Scripture has to say. We might do it intentionally because we want it to say what we feel and and how we want to live. Um, Sometimes I think it is potentially innocent and we just misquote or we paraphrase and leave out some critical meaning that's in the text. So let me give you an example. You've heard this before, right? Money is the root of all evil. That's how it sounds, right? Mm, We might want to take a look at what the Bible says. If we look at 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 10, it reads, For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Did you catch that? I know I did. The text said this morning, for the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. It's really interesting how a subtle change in words completely changes the meanings of the text. So the misquoted representation, once again, so nobody misses it, the misquoted verse is money is the root of all evil. That is false. Scripture says for the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And think about that for a second. How can money itself be inherently evil? Money is is just a thing. It's no more evil than a loaf of bread or a slice of cake. I would probably argue that fruitcake is evil, but that's a subject for another day. But money is just a thing, and therefore, because it is a thing, it is morally neutral. And so what we choose to do with it is what makes it good or evil. So if we take money with pure intentions, we can do a lot of good in the world. However, if we take money and we use it with wicked intentions, we can do great harm. And so it's clear this morning that the point that we're trying to get at regarding the morality of wealth is that the the wealth itself, the money, is not evil. It's the behavior and the attitudes behind it. 
So there's this big pendulum swing that you can think of when we go to talk about money. We live in this, this culture uh, of materialism where the, the things and the possessions and all this stuff that we chase, it, it kind of becomes our God and it becomes idols and we can fall prey to that all of the time. But there, And that's one extreme. But then there's another extreme uh, called asceticism and this is where we act like being poor is, is a good thing, like something that God lifts up and, and, and cherishes. And God does have passion on the poor. He's compassionate. He loves them and he wants us to take care of them. But, but being poor doesn't make you any more holier than somebody who is rich. Okay. You have to understand that this morning. Once again, we remember God hates partiality. And so if we're condemning Christian brothers and sisters who, who are wealthier than we are, but they have good intentions and they're using that wealth to further the kingdom of God, we're committing the sin of partiality. We're mistreating them differently. And likewise, much like we talked about mistreating the poor, it goes both ways. And so we cannot be on either extreme or the other. I believe it was Martin Luther that said, the devil doesn't care what side of the horse you fall off as long as he can knock you off the saddle. All right. As long as he can knock you off the saddle. Think of it like this. If money were evil and Christians should never go after having any of it to do good in the world, then all the money in the world would be in the hands of those with wicked intentions. And so what good would the church and Christians be able to do in the world if they didn't have this? And so it's clearly just logically doesn't work out. And the truth of the matter is that wealth simply magnifies what is already there. If you are a selfish jerk with a very little bit of money and you inherit a large sum or or hit the lottery or something to that effect, you will be a rich, selfish jerk. If you are generous and loving and you care and are compassionate for others with a little, if you were to come into wealth, you would be even more generous, even more compassionate, and you would show more love to the world. And so... As we pivot to the second point this morning, and before I, let me end the first one on this. We have got to guard among our, ourselves, our congregation as Christians, we have got to stop judging those that are a bit more fortunate than us financially, and likewise those that are less fortunate than us financially. There's two types of disciples in the Bible. Those that Christ calls to surrender everything, which he calls all of us to do that, but they give up way more possessions and they leave live a life of pilgrimage and meagerness. That's the disciples, right? The apostles that Jesus led. But then you have Levi, Priscilla, and Aquila who had businesses, who had wealth. But God was able, because of their full surrender and understanding God's ownership, they were able to use that for the good of the kingdom of God. All right? So let us not continue to commit the sin of partiality that we talked about in chapter 2 and judge one another based on our financial statuses as believers. So the first point this morning again is that we have to understand that wealth uh, is, is morally neutral, right? The morality of wealth. And then we need to understand God's ownership. The next big mistake that we all commit or have committed at some point in our lives is we have actually fooled ourselves as Christians into believing that we own anything that we own anything. So I want to take a a second to look at what the Bible has to say about money and possessions in regards to God's ownership. So Deuteronomy chapter 10 and verse 14 says this, Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the heaven of heavens, the earth with all that is in it. Psalms chapter 50 verses 10 through 12 read this, For every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills, 
I know all the birds of the hills, and all that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world and its fullness are mine. And then in Job chapter 41 and verse 11, we read, Who has first given to me that I should repay him? Whatever is under the whole heaven is mine. So we've arrived at the problem. God owns it all, and we've somehow said, hey, nope, this is my throne, this is my stuff, I own it. And and that is the wrong answer. We should be looking at full surrender. If we look at Luke chapter 9, verse 23, Jesus said this, He said to them all, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. If you truly want to follow Jesus with all fervor and intensity and and, and just receive the, the full reward of God to know what it's like when he's in number one place, you have to do full surrender. You, you have got to surrender complete ownership of all you have to him. And so I just want us to reflect this morning on our lives. Pastor Dustin likes to use this phrase. I'm going to borrow it this morning. He always says, we have to get this right this morning. And, and that's, that's true. We have got to get this right. If we leave this place with a false sense that we own anything, we are already losing control of the life that God wants us to have. When we do this, right, if we look at chapter 6 in Matthew and verse 24, it says, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. So you see, God hates idolatry. He's very jealous, and he doesn't like anything or anyone else taking the number one spot in your life. But we make this mistake as Christians. I want you to think of a racetrack being your life. What we do is we line people up and we let them run the race. So people and things. But we say, well, Jesus always comes in first place. And then my wife comes second and my kids come third and then my job. I mean, you've heard this before. Let me be honest with you this morning. Jesus wants to be the only one running on the track of your life. He's it. I'm not saying your wife or or, or husband is not important. I'm not saying your kids aren't important or that you have a job. But as it compares to him, none of that is as important as he is. He's got to run the race solo. He always wins. Nothing else can compare. So John Wesley was an evangelist in the early 1700s. And he was a big part of of the planting of the, the Methodist church that we know today. And so this man came frantically riding up to John and, and said, John, John, I have terrible news. Your house burned down to the ground. And John Wesley, I mean, he never knew this would be quoted from a stage today. He pondered on it for a moment, and then he responded, nope, the Lord's house burned to the ground. I have one less thing that I'm responsible for today. So we have to understand that it's not just our money, but our possessions also. Everything we have as Christians belongs to God. And so once we understand that God is the owner We have to understand who we are in light of that. So we understand the morality of wealth. We understand that God is the owner. And then finally this morning, we know that we are supposed to exercise proper stewardship because we are simply a steward. So what exactly uh, is a steward? A steward is someone entrusted with another's wealth or property and charged with the responsibility of managing it in the owner's best interest. And so a steward has a primary goal. Their primary goal is to be found faithful. When the owner comes back, and you know Jesus preached on many parables to this effect, 
that he will say, well done, my good and faithful servant. You have handled my resources well. You have not swindled and, and, and thrown them away at useless things. You've kept your eternal future in mind and focused on the kingdom work that I've given you. So here's three quick things that I'm going to give you this morning in regards to stewardship. You can only do three things with money. Only three things. You can give it away, you can save it, and you can spend it. And if the toilet paper crisis continues, you might be able to use it for something else. But you can give it, you can save it, you can spend it. So in terms of giving it, I could lose a lot of ground here this morning and I could say things that could harden hearts. I'm, I'm just going to get straight to the point. If we look at 2 Corinthians chapter 9 and verse 7, all Christians should be givers. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Other words that come to mind when I think of Christian giving and when I read what the Word has to say, when I look at, at other sources of Christian writers, words such as giving generously, giving regularly, deliberately, voluntarily, cheerfully, and also quietly. We should not be boasting about our giving, right? Jesus said, do not let the left hand know what the right hand is doing. We do not give so that we may boast and be the one in the spotlight. We're giving to further the kingdom work of God. And for those who have a little bit more wealth than the other, you probably know this to be true. As it relates to things such as taxes and, and some of the burdens that the government places on you, or if you don't know what to do with your money, one thing that I've learned and, and my wife have learned very, very quickly, that giving money away at, in that moment produces 100% freedom. When I increase our giving, I pay less in taxes. I, it solves a lot of problems. So it, if I don't know what to do with the money, no matter what, my default answer is, what can I give to the kingdom work of God? So we can give our money and we can save our money as well. Let's look at Proverbs chapter 21 and verse 20. Precious treasure and oil are in a wise man's dwelling, but a foolish man devours it. All right, so saving is important because there's things down the road that we may have to pay for, car repairs, uh, Christmas, you know, these types of things are important. And in retirement, honestly, right, one day you may not be able to work and generate as much income as you do today, and so saving for retirement is important. But understand this morning that idle money, and I mean idle, I-D-O-L and I-D-L-E, right, idle money is a bad thing. So if you're hoarding money, like we saw in the text this morning, just to have it, the Bible says you're committing a sin. Really quickly, Matthew chapter 19 and verse 21 says, Jesus said to him, if you would be perfect, this is talking to the rich young ruler, go sell what you possess and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. So the problem here is this rich young ruler said he was doing everything right, but Jesus saw straight to his heart and knew that money had taken the number one place. He was hoarding things up rather than focusing on the kingdom of God. Also, the rich fool committed the same sin, and we see that in Luke chapter 12. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and all my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. Jesus is very clear in Scripture that when you die, you cannot take it with you. None of us see a hearse driving uh, to a funeral with a U-Haul on it. Has anyone ever seen that? Because I have not. You cannot take it with you where you go. There are definitely things you should be leaving in your estate uh, as to what to do with your money, whether to leave it as inheritance, obviously to give, 
uh, same rules apply here, right? Give, save, and spend. And so finally, let's just touch on spending really quickly. Ecclesiastes chapter 5, 18 through 19 say, Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun in the few days of his life that God has given him, for this is his lot. So here's the point. There are people in this world that would have you believe that it's wrong for you to enjoy some of the wealth that God has given you. And that is false as well. Think of biblical heroes that were wealthy like Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Job, David, Solomon, and Lydia, for example. The Bible never condemns them for being rich, but it always points out how faithful they were to God and the good that they did in His kingdom. So, I'm going to close with this. Remember this morning, there's three things that we can start with as a foundation to understanding wealth, and we can avoid the behavior uh, that we saw in the text this morning. The morality of wealth, that wealth is not evil. It's, it's our actions and our behavior. That God is the owner. As Christians, we do not own our money and we do not own our possessions. And finally, if God is the owner and we have this stuff, we are just stewards. I would also say this. I, earlier I said that our culture tells us that money should bring freedom, success, security, worth, and happiness. But none of these things are true. Just as easily or, or with much turmoil and, and hard work, you can attain wealth. It's only as valuable as a society says it is, right? Look at the stock market right now just based on world events. We could lose our wealth in an instance. And so as Christians, our focus should be on things eternal. So as it relates to freedom, only Christ brings true freedom. As it relates to success, success is knowing and doing what God says. Security, well, real security is found in knowing God and trusting in Him. Worth is based on what God says and not what your bank account says. It doesn't matter if you're rich or you're poor. Worth is what God says it is. And He died on the cross for your sins and for mine. God says you are valuable. And finally, happiness. You could be happy, but the happiness from money is short-lived. True joy comes from knowing Jesus Christ. And so now that we have a, a better understanding this morning, I just want to point out that the Apostle Paul, he found that even with who he was before he became a Christian, in the moments of good times and bad, none of it even compares to his faith in Jesus Christ. Philippians chapter 3, verse 7 and verse 8. But whatever gain I had, I count it as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. You see, this morning, we talked about wealth and riches and, and how God asks us to manage these for His kingdom. They're His. They don't belong to us. We're simply stewards. And we should be doing the good work that He's given us in using those resources to spread the gospel, to love our neighbors. But understand this morning, I'm going to pivot from talking about financial wealth to talking about spiritual wealth. C.S. Lewis wrote something very powerful, and I want you to see it up here this morning. It says, He who has God in everything has no more than he 
who has God alone. I told you, wealth can come and go. You can have a lot of it in one moment and it can be gone in an instance. People lose all they have every day. And in the world that we live in right now, these times of uncertainty, where the CDC is claiming that what we're facing is a pandemic, we know certain things and there's other things that we don't know. Let's, let's just focus on what we do know this morning. And I'm not talking about COVID-19. I'm talking about Jesus Christ. You see, the Bible tells us that Jesus loved us. The Bible says that God is the owner of even us. We don't even own ourselves. The Bible says that He owns us and that we were bought with a price. And so whether you have a little money in your bank account or whether you have a lot, if you don't have Jesus Christ, you have nothing of value. You have nothing of value. You saw what the text said this morning. It will get you nowhere if you don't have Jesus Christ. We have got to make God the number one priority in our life. So we're going to be moving into a time of response. I'm going, to, I'm going to close this in a prayer in a moment. And just understand this morning, I know that some of us, maybe we were convicted this morning. We were made to feel uncomfortable. I get that. I've been there. I'm going to go home and, and be a little bit more uncomfortable and scrutinize our own lives just a bit more to make sure that I'm doing things God's way. And so if you feel convicted, if you want to pray at the altar, it's going to be open. But more importantly this morning, if you cannot honestly say, that you are not rich in Jesus Christ, if you've never put your faith in Him, if you've never surrendered your full life over to Him, got off the throne of your heart and let Him sit there instead, I urge you this morning, as much as I like to have conversations about managing money God's way, the conversations that I love the most is when a sinner comes to repentance and saving faith in Christ. So I'm going to be up here this morning. And if you want to come forward and pray, I'm perfectly fine. Germs and all. Just, just come forward. We'll trust God that He's bigger than all of it because He is. And so I would ask you to stand. The band's going to sing a song. I'm going to close us in prayer. Whatever God has placed on your heart this morning, please, please give Him an answer. Let's pray. Lord, it's never easy to talk about money. It's countercultural. We build our own walls. We develop our own understandings and we have our own, um, we just have our own desires as it relates to wealth and, and to the things that we own. But God, this morning, your word is clear that this, this stuff, this money, it's not evil. It's what, what we do with it and where our heart is, Lord. And we know that you're the owner. Your word speaks clearly that everything on the earth is yours. And so let us be convicted of that this morning. And finally, Lord, let us recognize that we are accountable to what you have given us, what you have entrusted us to be faithful to. Lord, more importantly this morning, if there's anyone here that has never experienced the richness of salvation, the only thing that matters, I pray that they would answer whatever you've placed on their heart today. I pray that they would come forward, that they would surrender their life to you, Lord. Father, be with us as we leave this place. Continue to protect us and keep us safe. We pray for our leaders. We pray for those affected by this virus. We pray that you would continue to stir up in us a heart of compassion, of love, of joy, peace, kindness, goodness, selflessness, gentleness, self-control. Let us be your hands and feet because we live for you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 
Thank you for joining us at the Impact Church Podcast. For this and other messages, visit us online at impactharlem.org. In the meantime, you can subscribe to this podcast, rate and review it on iTunes, and share it with your friends on social media. Once again, thanks for joining us at the Impact Church Podcast.